You've heard me say before, perhaps, that, that every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday, we gather on the first day, we gather on the Lord's day, we gather on Sunday because it was on that third day, the first day of the week that our Lord rose from the dead. You could say, if you wanted to approach Easter that way, you could also say, perhaps, that every, every tomorrow is Christmas. Every tomorrow is Christmas because Christmas is not merely about the time when Jesus came, but it's about his coming. It's about his coming. He came, and he's coming again. One of the things I loved about the Christmas music, the songs that we sang this morning, did you, did, did you notice over and over the, the worship team did, did something? They, they merged those Christmas carols, which are once a year kind of things. We sing them only at this time of year, and they merged that right into worship songs that we'll sing on other Sundays. That our Christmas celebration is about worship, and our worship is about his coming. So every Sunday is Easter, celebrating his resurrection for us. And every tomorrow is Christmas or Advent in the sense that our Lord may come. Now, some of you are thinking, well, why wait till tomorrow? That's true. But that the sense of anticipation, every tomorrow is Christmas. You know, I can hardly read one of the, the, the passages we read earlier in the service. I can hardly read Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. I can hardly read that without the, the music of Handel's Messiah echoing in my head. Do you have that? Yeah, I went to Evan a couple of days ago and I said, Pastor, could we, could we have the choir sing that Handel's Messiah? For unto us a child is born. That was pretty good. No, it wasn't. And, and he said, no. No, not two days before the service. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that to the choir and to the worship team. He said, do you realize how hard that is? I said, no. I know nothing about music, and you all know that. But I can't think of Isaiah 9-6 without Handel's Messiah echoing in my head. In our hearts. This simple, straightforward, and very well-known Old Testament prophecy, perhaps the best-known Christmas time verse in the Old Testament. It's a clear statement of God's overall plan and why, why we can be sure that Jesus is coming. Not just that he came and fulfilled prophecies sometime back then, but this is a verse that tells us why we can be sure not only that he came, but that he is coming. Three short phrases in Isaiah 9, 6 capture God's greatest work from nativity to Calvary all the way to kingdom glory. Here on this Christmas Eve morning, I want to talk about how what we celebrate confirms what we anticipate. What we celebrate that, that happened confirms what it is that we anticipate what we long for. What God has done gives us confident assurance concerning what God is going to do. For children, the wonder of Christmas is about presence, isn't it? The presence, the, the hoped-for great and wonderful gift 
I remember when I was a child. As children, we must have had difficulties with Christmas packages under the tree because the packages were always under the tree ahead of time. But after some years of poking and shaking, my mom got clever. She didn't put tags on the packages any longer. She put a colored dot on each one instead. And she didn't tell us which colored dot was for which of the four kids until Christmas morning. And some of you parents are saying, ah. Well, I didn't know what set of of colored dots was mine, but I thought I figured it out this year because I wanted a drum set. Oh, I so hoped for a drum set. And the church today is thankful that Bob did not get a drum set that Christmas. I wanted a drum set. And, and there was this one bigger package under the tree. And it was big, but it wasn't really heavy for being so big. It, it seemed like there must be a drum set in there. So that colored dot must be mine. And I couldn't wait. Well, I was close. It wasn't for me. It was the package was for my sister. It wasn't a drum set. It was some weird, that I never saw before nor since, thump-a-drum game. So there were drums involved. But something about balls that would go up a tower, and the middle balls would come out of the spout, and they would bounce, bounce, bounce on three little drums, and then they would land in a tray, and you could get points, and then they'd go around the circle, and they would do it again until the batteries ran out. Thump-a-drum. How disappointing. Parents don't ever get your children thump-a-drum. But I didn't know. So I didn't know that parents never get their children drum sets, at least not at that age. That's something that grandparents do. <laughs> I can hardly wait. <laughs> But the disappointment sometimes of that which you had anticipated and hoped for but did not come, did not happen. In the, in the present world, present problems, problems that may be going on in your life or in your family, or problems that might be going on with those whom you love and care about, they all also might be part of that collision in your heart between Christmas hope and a world, that's, world experience that so easily disappoints. It's, a, it's at that time, at that intersection, at that collision of, of, of hope and disappointment that it's good for our hearts that what God has done confirms for us what God will do, that what we celebrate confirms what we anticipate. Because this assurance, this assurance is given. Isaiah 9, 6, it's given in a context, it's given in a setting. It's given to people in the midst of a world that is broken, is disappointing, is despairing. Nothing is as it should be. Hope is gone. The future is dismal. Days are filled with distress and need. It's the consequences of a people's sinful rebellion against God, against his ways. It has resulted in the collapse of a nation, the destruction of a people. They are lost, destitute, needy, homeless, hopeless. The economy has collapsed. Their homes have been taken. They have been uprooted against their will. They have been forced to live in a faraway place, slaves and servants of another people, another nation. We don't like that sense of bearing of consequences. We don't like the idea that our rebellion against God will have its consequences in a broken world. And yet we need to acknowledge it because knowing life is broken is the first sense, is, or is the first step, rather, in its, its restoration and setting it right. 
the current experience that is the, is the backdrop, is the setting for this Isaiah 9-6, Handel's Messiah song verse, their hopeless setting is the setting for that. It's the dark canvas upon which that light shines. Their current experience points to what God will do, what God must do, how God will intervene. And it occurs in Isaiah in four big moves. There's desperation, there's incarnation, there is redemption, and there is restoration. I like these words better. Futility, nativity, Calvary, and glory. That stretches all the way back into the past of human history, all the way into the culmination of human history in God's glory. Futility. Nativity, Calvary, and glory. All of that is in these few verses around Isaiah chapter 6, or chapter 9 rather, in verse 6. That first move is futility. Now that makes sense. Futility needs to come first. We need to start there. I know that's not what you hoped for. First of all, coming together on Christmas Eve morning. Christmas Eve is the time of hope, anticipation. But in order to get to Christmas, you have to start there. After all, December 21st comes before December 25th, right? December 21st, the, the shortest day, the darkest day of the year, comes just before Christmas, just before the light of the world. God's word doesn't happen in a vacuum. As we're thinking about Isaiah chapter 9, I want to back up just a couple of verses. We're going to be in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to back up a couple of verses to the end of chapter 8. If you're following along in the, in, the, in, the, in the church Bible, you'll find us on page 573. But this promise of Isaiah 9 doesn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, it follows God's plea. God's plea comes to his own people and he says, there's trouble, but you need to trust me. And if you trust me, I will rescue you. I will save you out of it, but you have to trust me. That's Isaiah chapter 7. They do not believe. Their king does not believe. And the consequences of that unbelief play, play out in Isaiah chapter 8. There's this trouble coming on the horizon. It'll end in exile that, that Isaiah is predicting. But there's a couple of descriptive verses at the very end of chapter 8 that capture that futility, that sense of hopelessness. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. Things are going terrible. Things are going awful. And they blame the political leaders of the day, naturally. And they bring, blame God because he could have done something about it and apparently he has not. And they turn their faces upward and they look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's a downer. That's a mess. That's a lot of the world today. Think about those Syrian refugees stuck in camps. Think about Christians in Egypt who gathering together for their Christmas celebration, they are attacked and brutalized by a mob. Much of the world today, think of even those around us who are homeless, illegal immigrants. Well, there's a political problem, and yet 
that political problem on a big scale is also individual people, some of them trying to escape a very desperate situation. Brokenness in marriages, teens wandering. It's a mess out there. It's a mess around here. Now, those people in that historical moment, they have little reason to believe that God is going to do anything about it. Their experience tells them otherwise. Their experience tells them that they're on their own. Nothing is going to change. This is how it ends. Futility. Hopelessness. They don't believe in God, not anymore. Not personally, not as a hope for them. They believe that God is, and that maybe even God has cursed them to this, but they, they don't believe in God in the sense of trusting in him in the sense of hope, they have no lingering expectation that God is going to intervene. But, the next line says, but God does intervene. Now let's look into Isaiah chapter 9. That, that because God is there and God does care, the future for them is different than the past. The curse of their rebellion will be interrupted by God's redemption. Chapter 9 and verse 1, but there will be no gloom for whom who, her who was in anguish, those he was just talking about. In the former time, he brought into contempt, into trouble, into futility and despair, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, which is the route from the east to the Mediterranean Sea, the, this land beyond the Jordan, this Galilee of the Gentiles. So the one who was in anguish, the one that had been brought into contempt, this area of Zebulun and Naphtali, this is Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a particular part of Israel, the northern part of Israel, up north, Galilee. You know, as you read the gospel, Jesus is all around the Sea of Galilee and Cana and Capernaum and and Tiberias and all all of these cities right in that area. Now, It'd be help us to understand that setting, that region being spoken of, that very northern part of Israel. It's some of the most fertile and fruitful of the whole country. I'm told that in one, one valley, one fertile valley, if they were to grow hay, they could, they could have 15 hay cuttings, 15 cuttings of alfalfa a year. They don't grow hay there. They grow other crops instead. But it's a very fertile and fruitful land. But they say in real estate, location is everything, and the location is troublesome here. Galilee is the part of Israel that is closest to neighbors like Syria. And it's right in the way, it's in the way to the sea for any of those empires like Assyria, Babylon, ancient Mesopotamia, and then Persian, and all of these empires, if they're going to come from the east toward the Mediterranean to enter into trade, they're going to go right through Galilee. It's right in the way. And it was traveled through back and forth by the nations of the world. They never had their own chance. God put them right in the crossroads of continents. Not only that, but it's this Galilee that is the first to be overrun by Assyria when that empire grows up and the trouble starts. And it's just a a year, maybe two, from when Isaiah utters these words. This great trouble is going to come upon. They're going to get the worst of the Assyrian invasion because they're closest to Assyria. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be devastated. But in that wreck and ruin is exactly where God works his redemption. That's where it happens. That's where he shows it. That's where the light is going to shine the brightest. 
because that's where God works. That's, that's what God does. God lifts the fallen. He exalts the humble. He, he strengthens the weak. He chooses the rede- rejected. He, he sees those who are overlooked. He, he brings beauty for ashes. He brings joy for mourning. He brings praise out of heaviness. He brings life out of death. Certainly he can bring light into this darkness. And so Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness... Remember from that verse at the end of chapter 8? They've seen a great light. A light they didn't see before when they looked up. They only saw gloom and anguish, darkness and despair. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Where did Jesus carry out most of his teaching? Where did he present himself first as God's light? It was in Galilee. It was right here. You have multiplied the nation when they thought they were finished. You have increased its joy. They rejoice over you as with the joy of harvest. Those who hungered now feast. As they are glad when they divide the spoil, those who were the spoil, slaves, captured and exiled, now would rejoice as if dividing the spoil. God is going to change it. Look at the change God promises in verse 4 of Isaiah 9. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the days of Midian. When you think of the days of Midian, think of Gideon. God used one man and a handful of people using torches and pitchers against an army with swords and spears and bows and arrows and, and other implements of war. And they had torches and pitchers. And God delivered them from this invading, controlling, oppressing army. That's what he's talking about here. God is going to do something that's going to be unbelievable when he does it. He's going to rescue them. There will be wars and continuing threat of war, but the day comes when war will be ended. Verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, won't need any more combat boots, and every garment rolled in, in, in blood won't need any more battle dress uniforms. They'll be burned as fuel for the fire, not needed any longer. Why? How does this happen? How could this be? How does God set those who were in bondage free? How does God bring the end of, of war and conflict? How could God so radically change what have been the norms throughout human history? That's the setting for now, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. How do I know there's hope in Christmas? How do I know that things are going to be different? How can I know what is God doing when it doesn't seem in my immediate moment experience? It doesn't seem like God's doing anything or he's not doing what I want. I didn't get my drum set. How, how can I know that God's going to do what he said? Well, it's right here. It's because of what he's already done. It's what the season of Advent is all about. I believe that Jesus will come because of the historic reality that Jesus already came. This most well-known Christmas verse of the Old Testament, it refers to both the first and the second coming. The first coming and the second coming of Jesus in, in, in three quick movements. Three short declarations. A child is born. Nativity. A son is given, Calvary. And the government will be on him, glory, kingdom glory. 
Now, for some, the promise of Jesus coming, the making of all that's wrong in, 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 in life right, it seems too good to be true. It seems like my hope for, for a drum set at Christmas. It seems to be wishful thinking. You wish it were true, but from what you've seen, it isn't true. From what we've seen in the world, from what we've seen in our experience, what we see more broadly in the world around us, how can we know that that's true? How can we know that there really is hope? How can we know that our Lord will return? Well, what has the world seen? What has God done? For example, what year is it? That's not a trick question. It's going to change on you, but what year is it? It's 2017. That's right. 2017, for those of you that still write checks, you've got a few more days, and then you're going to have to train yourself again. That means, now why is it the year 2017? That's because roughly... 2,017 years ago, something happened. Now, roughly, give or take a year or two, historians are still clarifying that, but, but within a year or two, 2,017 years ago, something happened that was such a game changer, that was so different, that was so remarkable, that changed the course of human history, that every event in human history since has been dated in relation to that one, right? Right? It's 2017 A.D. It's 2017 Anno Domino. Now, I know that's being moved now. We're talking about, instead of A.D., we're talking about common era. No problem. Why was it that 2,000-some years ago, all of a sudden, we redated everything, and we, we, we compared everything else in human history to a particular moment then, so that this common era reflects back to that day, and everything before moves forward to that day. There was something in human history, judged pretty important in human history, that centered the rest of history around it. Just over 2,000 years ago, the stars aligned in what the New Testament calls the fullness of time. At that time, when the stars aligned in the fullness of time, was Jesus really born? Did it really happen? Was a child born in Bethlehem that was identified by the angels as, as the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Well, someone might say, I, I don't know that that really happened. Well, if you don't know that that really happened, you don't know that much really happened, really, certainly in, in older history. If we, if we don't know that, 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 that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, give or take a few, then, then there's much of ancient history at that time, certainly before, and even long after, that we can have no confidence at all that any of it actually happened. We don't know that anything happened hardly. Why? Because the birth and the life, the miracles and the death of Jesus are the, by far and away, the most widely, broadly, specifically documented of any event in ancient history. Not only by his followers, not only by those who believed it, but also those who saw it, heard about it, and were trying to answer it. So the historical reality is pretty clear. Unto us, a child was born. 
But since you're here in church on Christmas Eve, I won't, I won't wear that point out, okay? Let's assume because you're here in church on Sunday morning, Christmas Eve, you'll take for granted that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that unto us a child was really born. He really lived. He really died. That brings us to move number two in Isaiah's verse. Move number two is unto us a son is given. Now, at first glance, it might seem that unto us a son is given. That second move, it would seem that that sounds like almost a parallel to the first move. It could look like that. And yet, there's something more there. There's a child born, there's a baby in a manger, there's nativity. But unto us a son is given. Also points to something else. If we move over to the most well-known, the best-known verse in the New Testament, you'd come to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A son is given so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, you could see, say, okay, but didn't God give his son to the world in his birth when Jesus came to the world? That's not what John 3.16 is talking about. Those are the words of Jesus, and the verse just prior to that, Jesus speaks of his death on a cross when he said, in the same way, like that serpent in the wilderness, and that's a different story, but in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He said, in the same way, himself, the Messiah, needs to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When Jesus uttered uttered those words to Nicodemus, he was talking about his death for Nicodemus, for the world, for me, and for you. Unto us a child is born. Nativity. Thirty. Three years roughly later, unto us a son is given. The son is given. The son gives himself. God gives his son in death for you and I that we might have eternal life. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. My my point is this. Isaiah's prophecy points to one person in three different events. A child is born, nativity. A son is given, Jesus' crucifixion, Calvary, and then the government will be upon his shoulders, Jesus' kingdom glory. That third move is expanded on then in verse 7. Of the increase of his government, of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord will do this. God is passionate about this. God is going to make it happen. Isaiah's prophecy started with political oppression. It started with difficult, horrible situation that that, the people found themselves in. For some of them, it was their own fault. They had specifically not believed. For others, they were carried along because because of the rebellion of others. But there they were. He begins with the futility of the suffering of a broken people in a broken world. And he's pointing us to the resolution of that oppression and suffering. It's interesting Isaiah almost seems to rush past the child is born, the son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And then he goes on for a whole other verse, and he expands out how wonderful the peace, the righteousness, the justice of his rule, what it's going to be like, and it's going to be wonderful. Because that's the point. The point of Isaiah 6 and 7 
is the end game. What is God doing? Why did Jesus come? Why do we celebrate his birth? Not just that the world was so honored by such an event, that we were so honored that God would come and visit us in the, in the, in the person of his son. No, we celebrate this because God is taking that which is broken in our humanity, even in our own lives, and God is restoring it. Remember, from desperation, incarnation, God himself comes into the world, and that child in a manger. To redemption, the Son of God is given for us, dies for us. All the way to restoration, the restoration of all things, all that's wrong in the world is made right. From futility to nativity to Calvary, to glory. And God is passionate about seeing it through. The zeal of the Lord, the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me explain it another way. God has always intended to restore right and justice in the world. That's always been his intention. And you're saying, well, what is taking so long? We would like to see it. Well, what's taking so long, if I could put it so bluntly, is you and me, us, humanity. Why are we still waiting for when the government is on his shoulders? Can't God get on with this thing? We think of it in terms of those terms. Why are we waiting? Maybe God thinks of it in slightly different terms. Why are you waiting? And the Bible tells us that God is not desiring for anybody to perish. Maybe the waiting is for us. Maybe the waiting, maybe God is waiting for Jesus' kingdom on earth as it is in heaven because God is waiting maybe for you to respond to that same invitation so that you do not perish. Maybe God wants you to be included in it. Maybe that's why you're here this morning so that you could be included in this great work from, from all through human history, from futility to nativity to Calvary to glory, and God wants you in that end. Because if God is going to come and make all this wrong right, then all that is wrong has to be judged. And we want that when we look out at the wrong that others have done against us. We want God to change that, to take that away, to, to judge that, to destroy that. But what about the wrong that I've done? God must judge that too. That's the part we don't want to think about so much. It's really more about other people, isn't it? I mean, most things you hear in church and from the Bible, they're about other people, right? But if God's going to restore everything right, everything glorious, everything just, it means everything. It means even my stuff. And that's what he does at Calvary. So that I will not be judged at his coming. I will not have to be that that is cleared off to the side, the rubble of human history and its rebellion against God that was futile from the beginning and has finally ended. I won't be that that is pushed aside when that day comes. But I will be part of his restoration of all things. That's what God is doing through human history. It's huge, it's big, it's his own son in the middle of it and it's personal for you and me. The child was born. Jesus did come. 
incarnation, nativity. The Son was given. Jesus was given for us. The redemption, Calvary, his death in my place. So you can be confident then that the government will rest upon his shoulder. Restoration. Glory. I don't know, maybe, maybe you, like that audience we started with at the end of Isaiah 8, maybe you're overwhelmed in trouble. Or maybe you're distracted by other stuff. For either of those reasons, you can look up and yet not see, as they did in the end of Isaiah chapter 8. And so in the midst of that trouble or the distraction, when you see trouble around you other places, though it doesn't touch at you, you say, what is God doing? Is Jesus really coming? What God is doing is what he's been doing all along. What God has been doing all along is working from futility to nativity to Calvary to glory. Unto us a child is born. Happened. It really did. You can be sure of it. He really was born. And unto us a son is given. Now would it be too cheesy, too cute to say that when he says unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that us includes you. You can't have us without a you. Us includes you. That's a little cheesy, isn't it? We might line that one out, but, but hold on to it. Hold on to it for yourself. I won't use it again, but you hold on to it because it really is about you. God so loved you. That's what Nativity and Calvary are all about because God is passionate about He's zealous about it. He's excited about it. He is passionate about you in his glory. On the authority of God's word, even in this one little verse of it, I can assure you that no matter what it looks like now, Jesus is coming. I can assure you that Jesus came for you, that Jesus died for you, and that Jesus is coming. That is our hope. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. We can celebrate all of Christmas. All of Christmas, not just the nativity part, but we can celebrate the whole of Isaiah 9-6. He was born, he was given, and he's coming And for you, maybe that part of Christmas, this Christmas, is have you believed it? Have you believed him that God loved you that much to include you in that move from nativity to Calvary to include you in his glory? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that the Christmas that we celebrate, the coming of the child, the birth, the nativity, that that was merely one move in your plan and your purpose, a purpose that you long to finish, that you long to complete. 
And we would say, most of us, Lord, would happily, gladly say this morning, Lord, finish it. Lord, come. Maybe some of us with maybe a sensitive heart would say, oh, Lord, come. But wait, wait just a little bit for this one that I love. Lord, knowing that you love that one too. Father, I I would pray. Lord, if there's one here this morning that this is the opportunity, this is the time to know that not only was the child born, but the Son of God was given for us, for them. Lord, this morning they could believe that so simply. Right here, right there. God, I believe that Jesus, your Son, was given, died in my place for me so that you would include me in your glory. Father, thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for the best Christmas gift of all, the child born, the son given for us. In Jesus' name, amen.